Liberalism is on the decline. The unmarketability of his ideas means his losing to socialism and Trumpism. A new generation of liberals must rise to fight that. Due to us recording at home this week, audio quality may dip at times. Thank you for your patience and for listening to Think Critical. Colin Mortimer is the director of the Neoliberal Project and the Center for New Liberalism, which are digital-first think tanks that focus on promoting progressive yet economically sensible policy for the 21st century. First off, I'd like to welcome you to this podcast, Mr. Mortimer. I'm Joshua Miller. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I think uh, the first question we should ask you, considering you work for the Neoliberal Project, is what is neoliberalism? And uh, like, what do you think it's been his historical record? I have a pretty favorable view of the ideology, but um, you know, that's just me. There's plenty of people who certainly hate what they think neoliberalism is, even if it's really not what neoliberalism is. I mean, I don't think there's a one-word pitch or a one-sentence pitch for what neoliberalism is, just as I don't think there's a one-sentence pitch for what conservatism is or what socialism is or whatever, what any other, other ideology is. So it's hard to put it really, really briefly. I mean, I think the, the, the broad description is, at least in my mind, is neoliberalism is you're using markets to achieve um, positive societal Outcomes. So it's a very explicit um, leaning into uh, markets to achieve progressive goals. I actually think that's a better way to put it. So while conservatives might uh, believe in markets for for freedom reasons, like they believe like free markets are, are freedom and, and people should be free, yada, yada, yada. And then people on the left are just like, no, we don't like markets at all. Neoliberals are like, look, we believe with the outcomes the left wants to achieve, more or less. But we believe in using methods that are probably more friendly to the right. 
Yeah, like uh, I think there's a Milton Friedman quote, which is you know neoliberalism rejects the um, well accepts the the um, the goal of a free society as its primary focus, but it rejects the assumption that laissez-faire is the way to achieve that, and it says instead it replaces that with competitive markets, so markets that are efficient and that lead to efficient outcomes instead of markets that are completely free because market failures do exist. Yeah, I mean, Milton Freeman's an interesting example because, like, obviously he'll he'll say quotes like that, but he definitely leans more on the right side of neoliberalism. Even if I'm I'm personally a, a big fan of him, and I think he's an excellent influence, but I think that really reckons back to the historical definition of neoliberalism, which was the the ideology was kind of founded as a response to the failures of laissez-faire, and then the original founders were basically like, look, we believe markets are good. But unfettered free markets don't actually um, achieve the outcomes that people want, and, and society is actually mad at these um, laissez-faire policies. So we need to have a government that isn't necessarily nationalizing industries or being overburdening with regulation, but they are setting the rules and they're making sure that the markets are fair and that they work right. So it, it's a it's a it's a light touch. Uh, approach to regulation that actually makes markets achieve these broad positive societal outcomes that we want. And a lot of people uh, tend to associate neoliberalism with the uh, big deregulations of the 80s and 90s. And because, uh, you know, neoliberalism, for a while, it was it it was concerned with the issue of laissez-faire. Um, but then, you know, post-war, it took on central planning as its next big enemy. And central planning resulted in these overburdened regulations and over-publicized and, you know, nationalized industries, which neoliberalism spent its time, you know, I guess you can say combating, but or, or fixing really. Um, so you could you could sort of make the analysis that these the global economy is a product, or the growth of the global economy post seventies is a product of you know neoliberal thinking and the idea that that you know you you can't quash markets, you have to help markets. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to look at it. Um, I, I would agree with you that that neoliberalism, especially in the latter half of the 20th century, is largely responsible for the fantastic economic growth that we saw. Um, I think an interesting historical note about what kind of happened in the 70s and 80s was that the people who got credited with the um, the people who were called neoliberals during that era. We're not really neoliberals, and I've, and I've written about this, where what happened was, was like neoliberalism was founded um, pre-World War II during the interwar era, where a bunch of people got together, like we just discussed, and said, like, laissez-faire isn't working. We need another ideology. That ideology was neoliberalism, and it was kind of this – they called it a third way between laissez-faire and socialism. Then what happened was after the war, the, the, the neoliberal intellectuals – who are a part of the Mont Pelerin Society, were like, okay, we actually want to go back to laissez-faire. Um, this is primarily driven by um, people like Hayek and, and Mises. So they went back to the laissez-faire that they originally sought to rebuke, but they still became known as neoliberals. 
So while they no longer adhered to the neoliberalism that they they originally founded, they were still called neoliberalism. Neoliberalism, hence why in the 70s and 80s, when you had people like Reagan and Thatcher running around doing these these really strong free market reforms and being called neoliberals, they were reckoning to the neoliberal ideology of the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. Um, but they were not reckoning to the original neoliberal ideology as it was founded. They were more following Hayek and Mises as they went back to to laissez-faire. So it actually makes sense why people get confused between the two and why you see people um, mistake and interchange laissez-faire and neoliberalism because there really was this like weird like jumping of intellectuals between whether they were laissez-faire or neoliberal. I think I would sort of disagree with you about uh, Hayek being necessarily a laissez-faire um, thinker. I think there's a big difference between um, like a Mises and a Hayek. A Mises who you know disregarded any idea that market failures could possibly exist, and a Hayek was more concerned with information structures, and he said that it was too hard to manage for government. Because I think there's a really great anecdote at Montpellier society, Mises uh, stormed out of a room when Hayek and Friedman were discussing why basic incomes were good. Um, I think a lot of reason why we see you know Hayek being brought up as this idea of pure laissez-faire is because of this sort of like conservative strawmanning of him, just like they sort of strawman freedom, uh, Friedman, where they sort of will say... Oh, look at Hayek and Friedman. Here's a selective quote from one of their books, which basically validates our idea of uh, completely slashing taxes and taking away all welfare. When you know Hayek and Friedman wouldn't have supported that and didn't support that, but it's you know it's 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 the same reason why we we see it's sort of this effect of the movement conservative, you know, I guess movement you could say, where they tried to corner the idea that they had all the you know all the economic thinking in their pocket and you know the left completely disregarded that science when that wasn't necessarily true yeah i mean i think the the issue with hayek similar to the path neoliberalism has taken in in the eyes of of the wider public is like hayek went through phases where he would be neoliberal in the way i see the definition where he really was trying to forge this ideology that went between socialism and laissez-faire. And then he had other times, especially later in life, when he was more towards the laissez-faire. So I agree. Like I, I am also a personal fan of Hayek. I believe he's a great influence, and, and I think neoliberals should look to him for guidance. But it is important that when, when, when Hayek was on his intellectual journey, especially later in life, and he was advising people like Thatcher and Reagan, he was doing so as more of an advocate of laissez-faire, than he was back in the in the 30s, 40s, and to some degree the 50s with Friedman when he was agreeing with things like universal basic income. Yeah, I think especially um, I think it's especially important to note that like there was a perception that like central planning was more of a thing in 50s, 60s, and 70s. So in the 30s when it's just becoming a thing, there's less of a 
negative perception of what government intervention can do. Um, so, you know, if you go to the Walther Lippmann Colloquium in 1938, they're getting excited about the possibility of improved structures of social programs. You get people like Wilhelm Bropka, who has the idea of the social market economy of integrating monopolistic structures into the uh, into the free market or government monopolistic structures into the free market. Um, but then, you know, 1947, and this is this is after years of price controls and you know Britain and the United States. There's a and the Soviet Union had become you know more visible. I guess you could say there's a there's a I guess there's this idea amongst you know liber, like pseudo libertarian or like you know I guess liberal thinkers that there's there should be more done to fight central planning that there should be done to fight laissez faire because it's perceived as like less of a movement or less of a threat and that it's not really till Reagan that you get a consistent conservative domination of you know Reagan and Thatcher until you get a consistent conservative domination of like let's say um, the, the political sphere so there's less of an, a need I guess you can say to to fight against laissez-faire so you get people like Freeman admitted later in his life that he spent more time fighting uh, central planning than laissez-faire because he felt like it was more of a threat and his rhetoric did change during the Clinton era to fight laissez-faire more if you should Try and wrap up this uh, what is neoliberalism topic with just some more, um, like I guess some more modern. I'm gonna ask you some more some questions, I guess, about the, the what's going on in like the modern side of the the ideology. So, in your experience, what's like the what's what's sort of with the ideology post Reagan and Thatcher, where people perceive it as being you know more influential. I mean, I, I think I would like to see um, examples of how neoliberalism has dominated um, global politics um, since Reagan and Thatcher, if people honestly believe that, um, because there's there's been a whole lot of more government intervention, a whole lot of like laissez-faire intervention and not very much neoliberal intervention. Um, no, I mean, I believe it's still an influential ideology, um, particularly amongst like certain um, le- uh, center-left parties around the world. Like we really we're seeing a lot of um, center-left parties like labor and like the Democrats here in the United States moving to the left. But I mean, I, I don't really th- I'm not too worried about that. Like I, I do think that part of it is it's just like the the set of problems that we face nowadays do require more government intervention. And I think Brad DeLong has really articulated this, where he's been self-identifying as a neoliberal since the 90s. And I think he still perceives himself as a neoliberal, but he also believes that the set of problems we face today require a more interventionist um, um, approach. So I, I do believe that neoliberalism is influential, but I do think it's I'm very skeptical of this idea that it is it is running the world. If neoliberalism was running the world, we'd have housing in cities, we'd have free trade agreements left and right, um, TPP would be law, um, and of course we'd have taco trucks in every corner. And we do not have either of those three, so until I see those, I don't think neoliberalism is the dominant uh, worldwide ideology. Um, I think there's a there's a really great quote, which is that neoliberalism is good policy, and the better your policy is, the more neoliberal you are. And I think that's that's kind of true because neoliberalism to me, 
a lot of the neoliberal thinkers had this emphasis on more scientific rather than like dogmatic thought. And so, you know, you could say that, you know, maybe maybe you, you could even say that the third way ideology and like the, the neoliberal thinkers of the 70s are both kind of in the same vein. And now right now what we see in policy is you don't see, you know, rational discussion or policy recommendations based on the, you know, the most objective data. We see whatever seems more popular to people, which is why you get things like Medicare for all, you know, being touted by the left as the uh, the healthcare solution we need when you know, the German system would be much better or the public choice system would be much better. That's why we see, um, you know, people advocating for, you know, protectionism because even though, you know, immigrants and trade don't actually hurt jobs, there's this perception that they do. So that's what, you know, politicians will recommend. Just so, yeah, I mean, as much as you could even say, I think that the best parts of globalism were respond were the you know were made by neoliberalism and whatever you know and in in some of the um, the the backlash to neoliberal thought is honestly what's been causing us problems. The idea that you know we we don't want to trust science. The idea that we want to regress from leadership on the world stage. So why do you think, like, liberalism, which is this ideology, I think we can acknowledge has caused a lot of good things. Why do you think it's declining, like, in terms of popularity? I think there's two reasons, primarily. One reckons back to the set of problems I just mentioned, where liberalism, for all of its good things, is not always the most responsive to crises. And I think with things like global warming, with this rise, um, with this issue now of um, young people accumulating wealth so much slower than older generations um, and various other issues, that liberalism is not always the, the quickest to to react to that. So I think people are straying from liberalism because just the liberalism hasn't been good, frankly, at solving the problems that people have. Do I think that some of the criticisms of liberalism are unfair? Yeah, of course. But I think at the same time, like I think we really have to look at the hard evidence here. Like if, if people are are moving away from liberalism, I think we have to look into liberalism and, and say, like, look, we we need something, we need to do something different as liberals. Um, the second thing I think is more complicated, and I think it's actually a bigger issue than people give it credit for which is the internet. There's this fantastic book called The Revolt of the Public by Adam Gurry, Martin Gurry, sorry, Adam Gurry's his son. Um, and and Gurry's thesis basically is, is like liberalism to be a um, governing ideology, more or less, to, to have credibility with the public has to have some um, degree of hierarchy. So, like, you you need elites. You you need elites who are experts, who can govern, who can do things without necessarily always having to explain themselves to the public. And that's how it worked for many decades until the internet came out. Um, 
And the example Gary really the, the examples Gary really uses in his, in his book are are newspapers and um, broadcast news. So like back in the the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and, and to some degree the 90s, it was like you had two sources of information basically. You either could turn on CBS News at night, um, or you could pick up your local paper. And that was where you got your information. You you didn't have your your Aunt Sally reading some blog on Blogspot that was peddling conspiracy theories, sharing that on her Facebook feed, and you being like, oh, maybe she, maybe Aunt Sally's onto something. You just didn't. So you just trusted the elites who told you things in the newspapers and and on um, on the night, nightly news. And they were mostly right. Like they were honest people. They they put out a narrative that justified the current governing elite. And and for the most part, things worked. Obviously, there are significant stumbles during that time, whether it was um, hyperinflation or the Vietnam War. But more or less, like people beckoned back to that era, and that was like that was a good era of politics. That was a good era of government. We really want to restore that. And I think it's no coincidence that everything kind of of went crazy once once the internet came about because now it wasn't the New York Times telling you what you should think. It was. 17 different bloggers, thousands of different people on Twitter, your Aunt Sally on Facebook, all peddling you different ideas. And that undermines liberalism because you like if you can speak, it's like the it's like debate. Like the people who win debates are often not the people with the best ideas or the smartest. It's the people who can speak the best. So the internet intrinsically favors populists to peddle conspiracy theories or or false economic narratives and all of that. And people's politics are, are being changed by that. And I think, again, more evidence to back that up was democracy partially was um, the, the printing press was partially responsible for democracy because you could put books in people's hands because they became more more knowledgeable because they began to realize that there was more to the world and more to governing than just like the kings and queens who ruled them they demanded democracy and the and the printing press was partially responsible for ushering democracy in around the world we're seeing a similar thing with the internet and i think we're really in the early stages of how this is going to reshape our politics and reshape our world and i don't think anyone is ready for for how drastic the change is going to be there's a we interviewed a couple months ago oh actually we interviewed last month a author by the name of lee lee mcintyre um whose main thesis is writing about uh, you know post-truth and essentially that the idea that media has been changed to present truth as not really a thing that exists so much as a as a subjective feeling and i i think that's you know it's, the internet is the ultimate arbiter of, you know, feelings over facts, because there's there's not um, because on the internet there's so many different sources, as you said, that you're gonna always find one that that will agree with what you're inclined to believe, so much that so that you know you're not really inclined to say that there's an objective truth out there as so much as what you want to be true, right? Um, you'll, you'll you'll notice that like like in in terms of our you know our, our education you'll notice there's like less people who I believe in like even the core aspects of liberalism that they don't like something they think that they have the aspect to take that away and to regulate that and that's not you know one of the core things of liberalism is even if you don't like something 
you can't you don't really have the right to stop it unless it's actually hurting you and you know in a in an overt manner and you'll notice that like like if so, like you know, in facts, of course, will in you know in in, in rational thinking will dictate um, towards liberal policy. But on the internet, when it's when it comes down to you know somebody complaining about something, like oh we we gotta ban this, oh you know the elites they control you, you gotta t- you know, tear them down. Uh, you're not gonna end up with this, as he said, this rational discussion. You're gonna end up with what people are already inclined to believe and people aren't necessarily inclined to be rational beings right yeah i mean i think that's one of the things liberalism really doesn't get credit for is it makes us it makes us rational it makes us better citizens and we're losing liberalism and and as a result we're becoming less rational and 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 less um worse citizens for lack of a better word so um yeah it's kind of funny to see neoliberalism as this very particular thing getting disparaged. And I, I mean, a lot of people say it's a ruling ideology, even when it's not, but it's kind of funny to see it as this, like, ultimate, you know, source of ire on the internet. Because, like, you could credit the saving of the, um, you know, I guess the I guess the money supply via monetarism as being sort of a neoliberal thing, because a lot of the people behind the engineering or the re-engineering of the uh, Federal Reserve were neoliberals. neoliberals. You can see the, uh, the products of globalization, you know, being, uh, you know, more products, cheaper prices as being, you know, parts of the neoliberal plan or the or you know better social safety nets or less destructive regulations yet you still see it being complained about because you know there's it's this is buzzword you can pick right you can say oh this is ruining everything even if you're just, even if it's really just a product of you being dissatisfied with some particular thing like just that there's you're never going to see a, a fully self-satisfied very online person yeah i mean i think what really happens there is like people want to believe that there is this covert conspiracy in the world by the governing elite who rally around this secret ideology. And I think people have just come to call it neoliberalism because a bunch of weird sociologists called it that back when these people are in college. Um, I, th- I think people just want to believe that like there, there's something more to what's going on. Like they want to they want to blame like they don't want to just say like oh I just don't like the status quo because that's kind of boring. Even though people do say that, people want to say like I'm fighting against like a real thing. Like there is an actual ideology that's governing this world and it's making our lives worse. And it's called neoliberalism. We need to fight against neoliberalism. And then you're like oh well, okay what's neoliberalism? What are we fighting against? And they're like we're fighting against neoliberalism. So I I don't think it's anything more complicated than like I think if you were to ask people who are against neoliberalism if they're um let me try to rephrase that if you were to ask people if you were to explain neoliberalism to them like from my perspective or your perspective and um they were okay backtrack sorry I keep jumbling over this if you were to find someone who says they're against neoliberalism and then explain to them what neoliberalism means from mine or yours perspective they would probably still be against mine or yours perspective of neoliberalism that's not what I'm getting at but I think most of the people in popular discourse on, on Twitter or Facebook or Reddit or in academia just want to find a name to to pin their their resentment on and they just stumbled on neoliberalism of kind of and kind of have stuck with it 
it's sort of like the equivalent of all, of like the right wing calling like all um, social programs like socialists whenever you see like any negative effect of capitalism that's neoliberalism everything we find out neoliberalism you know every day when I wake up if my foot hurts you know my back hurts it's neoliberalism's fault it makes you work too hard you know it's scarcity you know that's that's neoliberalism's neoliberalism's fault. Like it's, I think there's also this this general problem you notice in all people that it's very hard for people to accept that there's bad things in the world and they're bad because the world is not exactly a friendly place. That there's scarcity in the world. We're always going to have scarcity until we develop out of it. We you know it's not self-imposed scarcity. There's war in the world. It's and it's because people are naturally prone to conflict. There's going to be starvation. People are going to have to work long long hours and hard hours to build things where you don't have enough money to pay for it all um, at once and it's just kind of hard to accept idea that it's nobody's fault it's not this secret cabal making you do this it's just the way the world is it's very discomforting for a lot of people yeah and again i think i think this re- reckons back to what i was saying about the failures of liberalism like liberalism needs to get better to stop these people from being pissed off all the time and i think doing things like um improving working conditions and 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 beefing up the, the social safety net would make people less pissed off about liberalism because they're, they're actually pointing out real things that they're aggravated with. Like they, they can talk about how like, oh, I'm a gig worker and I can just like be laid off and or I, I can just like not have any income if like this like weird employer, but it's not an employer, doesn't provide me with like benefits or, or something or, or doesn't provide me with a living wage and I don't get social security and I don't get Medicare and like all these different things. So there's like legitimate grievances people have with like how the economy is working at the moment. And I, I think what happens is, again, is like they they want to like tie it into some like broad ideology and they call it neoliberalism. Um but like I, I think like broadly, like look, people most people understand that like scarcity is a thing. Most people understand that like you can't play video games all day and expect to make uh, a living. But people like want to understand that like, okay, if I'm gonna get off my ass and and go to work, I wanna make sure that I'm not starving. I wanna make sure that I have health care. I wanna make sure that I have X, Y, and Z. So again, like liberalism needs to do better by these people. And I think that's what neoliberals are are grappling with. And I think that's what they're trying to push. Um, maybe they could do better. Um, so it's like, I, I, I've written before. It's like, I think these people are wrong, but it's neoliberals fault for letting them be wrong. Like we need to do better as an ideology, as a, a group of intellectuals, a group of people at making people's lives better and not just yell at them for being wrong. Yeah, I think the I think the first steps really gonna have to be taking control of, you know, the Congress and the White House for the Democrats. There's there's no way you could I mean the conservatives are just gonna make things worse. They're I think they're purposely sort of winding up the country for a like a sort of a self spiraling defeat. Not even maybe not purposely, but there's a they, they they should be somewhat conscious that they're not doing things that are considered to be scientific. And, uh, you know, I had a friend uh, who pointed out sort of recently that you could say the conspiracy theory is a failure of liberalism because as much as, you know, the left may com- uh, complain about liberalism sort of cause for maybe, you know, poor material conditions, the the right – 
wingers. They, 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 when they complain about the economy under neoliberalism or under liberalism, it's gotten better. So they, they, they're really complaining about what they, they feel is done civically to them. You know that, that they see too many immigrants, too many foreign products, and that you know they sort of turn to things like conspiracy theories to fill this sort of void that's normally filled by this cultural identity they feel are sort of being lost in the, the slipstream of multiculturalism. So in, in effect, the, the moon landing conspiracy theory is the ultimate you know, neoliberal backlash because it's basically a backlash against American power projection. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it. Um, people believe in conspiracy theories because there's a void in their in their lives or their perspectives that's not being filled by the mainstream media or the government or whatever. I, I think the I think the Q anon conspiracy is the best example of this. Is like Trump supporters believed so strongly in Donald Trump that he was going to change the world and do all these vastly great things for the country and make America great again and yada 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 and then he didn't. So immediately, like a few months into his presidency, the QAnon conspiracy theory popped up that really created this narrative and this mythology around Donald Trump that he was going to bring down the pedophiles and bring down the child traffickers and and yada, yada, yada. And he was going to do all these great things that people are excited about. And actually only a select few people who are in the know were going to know about it. And they were the Q followers or whatever they call themselves. So they've like to fill the void of the lack of action Donald Trump has taken, like they've created this like person who doesn't exist, who's doing all of these things, and they just keep waiting. It's like the it's like the doomsayers who think like the world is gonna end every two years. It's like every week Donald Trump is gonna arrest the pedophiles and jail Hillary Clinton, but like that's not happening because these people are really like in a cult. Like their their mind is like fucked up believing in Donald Trump that he's going to do something and he's not. It's like waiting for Godot. Like you know, every week they, they, they're they sort of so empty by, you know, the either like the, like what they sort of felt like they've been deprived of that they're, they're waiting for this like archetypical messiah to do, you know, complete their wish list. And it's and it's it's it gets kind of hard to especially you'll notice it's amongst you know white former middle class people it's very popular because they they felt entitled earlier in their lives then they 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 realize that they don't get all the things that they 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 feel like they should have access to so they come up with this you know this figure that's gonna get them everything they need for them. Yeah, I mean, I think that like like oh, ties into the, the original reason Donald Trump won was because he really he really. Um, capitalized on this white resentment that was going on in this country um which again like it really does make perfect sense that the the QAnon conspiracy theory popped up if it wasn't going to be QAnon it was going to be some other conspiracy theory about how Donald Trump was actually doing work when in fact he he wasn't and I think that's like one of the things that's been really remarkable about the Donald Trump presidency is that it hasn't been defined by um, it's like bad, the bad things it has done, but it's been defined by its sheer incompetence to even do bad things. Like you, people really can't cite many good things Donald Trump has done. They can cite plenty of bad things, but far more than anything else that we've seen during his presidency is him saying that he's going to do bad things and then him just not following through with it because he's just not good at governing. So, like, I hope 
that there is a link between bad politicians and incompetency is electorally successful, but I'm worried that bad politicians and electoral competency is also a good thing. And you're going to see someone like Josh Hawley or Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or or someone else like that moving really to the right, becoming president and and doing actually bad things competently because I think – in, in truth, we kind of got lucky that Donald Trump said he was going to do all these bad things and then just didn't because he's not good at governing. Yeah, I don't know about uh, about Rubio. Like, I, I was not a, a big fan of Rubio compared to how much I liked Hillary Clinton and Bill Wells during um, 2016. But I think Rubio has, is this, one of the most sane members of the Republican Party. It's not a high bar, but... <laughs> He's 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 not bad, but I yeah I, I would agree that the, the, one of the this, one of the craziest things about the Trump one of the craziest things about the Trump presidency honestly is not that he has bad strategy or evil strategies that he doesn't have a strategy he, he, he like he doesn't appoint people to positions he has like random people employed in in the executive branch they do like random things all day come out with a plan that's gonna ruin things then backtrack on it and then you know throw a storm in the in the secretary's room it's i mean it's 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 essentially sleeping at the wheel yeah i mean like i i think part of it is just like our our government is designed that like you can't do drastically bad things easily um which I think is is a testament to to America that we've actually set up our our system of checks and balances well enough that like you can't go and like I don't know do something real I don't know I don't even have a good example do something really bad with um with impunity um but it but we have learned that it is quite easy to just like break government if you're if you're a bad bad leader yeah a lot of times it's like um if, if you have this decorum in American politics because of our like our liberal traditions our democratic traditions and it's taking us all the stops of that you know decorum in order to stop the the wave that is Trumpism from ruining democracy like it's 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 you'll, you'll notice that it's all the uh, old people with no political stakes like all the former Bush administration officials who have turned away from Trumpism in the Republican Party to help fight back against this denigration of democracy and it's really gonna it's really gonna have to be proving to politicians that there's gonna be electoral consequences if they don't turn away from Trumpism That's going to have to you know be what saves us essentially that that we're gonna have to show that trump won't get you elected anymore yeah i've said this before i I think uh trumpism really does have a expiration date just be based on the demographics of america i mean you have this large population of of boomers um we're really white boomers who are really pro-trump but in a few years, like America's on track to be a majority minority really soon. The the boomer generation is gonna slowly pass away. You have a young generation that's growing up that like even the Republicans of this generation are are really socially liberal. So it's it's like you'll probably see like one or two more politicians really try to run on Trumpism and, and really push that um that aesthetic and i think we might see people like holly if they run in the next few years kind of do a little bit of that but it, the, the, you can't beat 
demographics. And, and I think the fact that the, the country is going to be a majority minority and, and not have this this gentrocracy, I can't never pronounce that word, of boomers running the country just just spells doom for, for Trumpism. So I, don't, I, I can't predict where the Republican Party is going to go, but they're going to have to go somewhere else than where they currently are in a few years. Um, I forget what um, uh, what Ross Dufat describes it as, but his idea sort of is like a working class sort of neoconservatism, where it's it it dropped the the social conservative values for the most part, focus more on actual family values, focus on maintaining dominance on the global stage, and focus on like more like community based social welfare programs, like getting money to communities directly via like stuff like school vouchers. And I, I mean, I, I'm not on board with most, you know, with, I mean, with all of that, but it does seem certainly way more positive than whatever we have right now in the Republican Party. And, you know, the Democrats also, we, we would have the next, you know, 50 years in the bag, but it seems like a lot of the Democratic Party is content on accidentally kicking out Floridian Hispanics or Asians in California because of you know getting cut up in like petty identity issues which will cost us elections at some point if we're going to become minor- majority minority the Democratic Party needs to maintain what why minorities like it and you know we saw African American voters in the most part voted for Biden over Bernie and if we continue to push towards you know like like Rose's you know populism that we're going to lose what makes the Democratic Party successful and we're going to and there's a and there's a chance for if the Republicans get their act together for them to steal voting bases in key states. I mean, people have been saying that forever, and I will believe it when I see it, even if I do think it will happen eventually. It's just that everyone everyone who has predicted the Republicans will will move to the left on race has been proven wrong time and time and time again. But I do think that is a like a, a decent warning to Democrats that for now they can rely on minorities voting for Democrats, partially because of the racial resentment that's intrinsic to the current Republican Party. But if in a decade that's not a thing, like I, I, I do think um, minority groups will shift over to the Republican Party. I mean, Hispanics are the quintessential example that um, the Republican Party used in, in after the 2012 election. Their postmortem was like, look, we need to do better with Hispanics. And they obviously didn't. But Hispanics really do have the the cultural makeup that would fit well within the Re- Republican Party if the party just kind of tweaked a few of its of its stances. Um, so I mean, at the same time, I think it's ironic that the way Republican part the way the Republican Party is going to capture minority groups is going to be it becoming more like the Democratic Party, which then at that point like. Who, who cares <laughs> what what party is getting what group if they're like chasing the same goals um but i i do think that is a trend that we will see even if i'm, I'm not gonna bet any money on that So how do you think we should rebuild our institutions to bring back, you know, neoliberalism, to bring back liberalism as a successful and loved ideology? 
I, I think there needs to be a, um, a one and like an explicit acknowledgement of of the way our communication works nowadays, specifically with the internet, which is why I've, I've put all my chips into like the, the Center for New Liberalism and the Neoliberal Project need to be digital first organizations because that is just the state of the game nowadays. And I'm, and I'm highly critical of a lot of other think tanks and similar organizations in D.C. that still believe that the policy pipeline is uh, an expert writes a white paper and the the Congress is just so a member of Congress is just so amazed by how good the white paper is that they write legislation around and bring it to the floor. That doesn't happen anymore. And organizations are still funded on this idea that that happens anymore. And it, it doesn't. So what I really believe is like you need to energize the public. You need to energize normal people to get excited about ideas, to to push their their lawmakers consequently to endorse those ideas. And that's that's much harder than like writing a white paper and, and just like sending it out for, for members of Congress to endorse. Um which is the work we're doing at PPI. Like I'm really happy to be here because we have so many experts in various fields. Like we have Michael Mandel doing our, our economic policy. We have our education team. We have um, Ben Ritz doing budget issues. We have Alex Stop and now Caleb Watney, who will be doing tech issues. And they can write excellent white papers and they have great ideas. And then my job is like, look, if you email it to your mailing list and and maybe you get like what aids attention, it's still not going to become legislation. It doesn't happen anymore. This isn't 1990. What we're going to do is, as the neoliberal project, as a center for new liberalism, is is we're going to do content about it. We're going to really get the idea out there. We're going to push it and get people excited. And that might actually push change. Because I believe, like, one, digital platforms are a great way of spreading ideas. But two, and I think you're, you're a part of this, is, like, people more so than ever before are identifying by their political beliefs. And and, and socialists and conservatives and, and Trump supporters and yada, yada, yada. I've been really good at building communities around their labels, around their political ideologies, and it's time for the center left to do the same. So that's my goal with the Center for New Liberalism and the Neoliberal Project is to create an explicit neoliberal identity for people to rally behind and to believe in the ideas that we push for and then to use this grassroots network of people who believe in our ideas to to push our politicians and our lawmakers to get behind good ideas. Uh, Yeah, I think, um, you know, you'll notice there's all these politicians who are like, you know, storied and, you know, long term politicians from urban areas who kind of get pushed out by these this wave of populism. And I guess there there is a lot of on the Republican side that sort of happened with Trumpers taking out neoconservatives. But I don't really know how to address that from liberalism. But at least for us, you know, if we do a better job of finding someone who is our AOC, who promotes the, the the sort of hip policies, but this time they work, then, you know, that'll go a long way to getting what we need done, because it's one thing, you know, I, I guarantee AOC does not care too much about white papers. She cares more about the marketability of the idea she sort of has than than about the white paper supporting it. And she's right. It. She's 100% yeah. right. Yeah, that's how, I mean, that's how, like, it's, it's not working right now, but it will start working, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the line where the marketability starts outpacing the the uh, expected, you know, return on a, on a policy by a long form of how to get things done. Well, I mean, no, I, I honestly think that, like, look, I, I don't agree with AOC's ideas, but I, I think she her approach to politics is, is miles better than any member of Congress. Like she, she 
I mean, she like will release white papers. She released the the Green New Deal white paper, white paper, quote unquote. Um, but she understands that like the, the primary way of of pushing the envelope and and forwarding ideas and getting people excited is not white papers. It's it's building a movement more or less, and that's what she's done so successfully. So I mean, I, I look at AOC and I'm just like, everyone should emulate her. She she knows what she's doing. Other people don't. In short, like, why neoliberalism? Why would you say this is the ideology? This is what we need. Well, what's your little elevator pitch, I guess? Markets are, I'm stealing this from Sam Bowman, at, um, formerly of the Adam Smith Institute. Markets are really good at creating wealth, but they're but they're not good at spreading it. Um, and I think the, the pitch is like, look, we want people to be wealthy. We want people to live good lives. That's why we should have markets. But that's why we should also have a strong state that, that engages in redistribution, that sets the rules and, and, and creates prosperity that we can all share in. So, um... Uh, thank you for your time, uh, Mr. Mortimer. Um, I love the work you do, and uh, we'd love to, you know, have you on again if you wanted. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, and I, I'd be happy to to join again if if you ever want to talk about neoliberalism. Music credits to Kevin McLeod and Wikimedia Commons.